we need to pray for our nation, so join me as we do that. Father, it's been a few weeks since we've been together, and I miss being with your people. You have redeemed your people for your name and for your fame and for your glory, and you've rescued us from being lost in our sin. You've made us to be a people for your possession, a special holy people to you, not because of who we are, because of who Christ is for us. And so we're eager, Father, for his kingdom work to continue to expand through our community, in our nation, and among the nations of the, of the earth, so that more and more people would become followers of Jesus, his disciples, his kingdom people who, who would trust in him, who would obey him, who would be uh, those who reflect his glory, those who obey his kingdom truth. Father, our nation is, you've blessed us in so many ways. It's not the kingdom of God. We don't put our trust and hope in the United States or how well we're doing, but we do pray for our nation that you would grant us uh, at least a civil peace, that you would permeate this nation with people who are belong to Jesus and we would be able to, to be those who bring true peace through the gospel to those who don't have it. We pray, Father, for more and more people who have your righteousness as a gift to live rightly in your sight and that even those people who are not your people would would follow a sort of rightness that we can have a, a peaceful and just society. I pray for our new president. Father, I'm grateful to, to acknowledge that you are his judge. He stands or falls before you. But because he's such an out-there person, his sins have loomed large by his own lips and how he has portrayed his, himself. So I pray, Father, you would bring him to repentance over the things that he has said, things he has done, and he would really have a broken heart over his need for a Savior. Uh, Father, some people have perceived that, that he's already done that. It doesn't seem like that's what's coming from him. So I do pray, Father, whatever the case is with his heart, I pray for his repentance. I pray that he would become your child and he would live in the, in the saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, if that isn't happening in the near future, only you know how that's going to be for him, I, I pray that you would grant him a listening ear. You would restrain him from making decisions that bring harm and, and tear down our nation. You would grant him wisdom and wise counselors. You would, you would um, sober him from being proud and being all about himself, and I pray that he would be humbled and he would be uh, submissive to, to those who can speak truth and words of wisdom into his life. I pray for his, his cabinet and others who are part of his team that they, they would have wisdom as well. They would follow godly wisdom if they're your people, and if they're not your people, that they would, they would be restrained from, from making foolish decisions and, and doing things that are uh, plunging your nation into more division and, and harm. Father, for those who are protesting, those who are angry, those who are taking, we have so many different divisions and people fighting one another and word wars, if nothing else, I, I pray, Father, that that would be lessened 
and that your peace would guard our hearts and minds who are, who are in Christ and that we would bring about a, a good, just civil society by, by having good conversations and not being at war with one another. As intense as those things are, Father, we recognize they're not going to come about unless you, by your common grace, you really do shed your grace on us and you would restrain us from being, from ruining ourselves. But having said all that, prayed all that, Father, we, we, we know our hope is in Christ and we as your church want to be about your business, the gospel. So help us to be all about Christ and all about the gospel, doing good for people, speaking good for people. Father, we do lament this day 44 years ago when a law was passed making unborn babies less than human and treating them as not persons and leading to the deaths of so many of them over these years. We pray, Father, for that law uh, to be overturned. Even if it isn't, we pray that it would become unthinkable. Abortion would become unthinkable in the near future as we see what's so obvious that these living persons in the womb. Father, may your word speak powerfully into our lives today. We, we need your word. We need your spirit to, to breathe life into us so that we're living the life of Christ for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're almost done with 2 Timothy. And uh, so in, in any family, in any business, any government agency, any sports team, military uh, group, um, there are priorities that are non-negotiable and are indispensable in order for that entity to fill its purpose. Whether it's whether the priorities are convenient to carry out or not, whether they involve hardship or not, they must be done in order for them to succeed in their reason for being. So, for example, the, uh, a couple of the values of the Navy SEALs are these. Belief in the mission and unyielding perseverance to achieve victory. So, in other words, for the Navy SEALs, they, they believe to succeed, they must be sold out to their mission, and they must be willing to persevere no matter what to achieve victory. So in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing from prison in Rome, knowing he will be executed. He prepares Timothy to carry on the ministry with Paul being off the scene. He lays out for Timothy what is non-negotiable and indispensable in order to fulfill his ministry. He's not introducing anything really new. He's just, um, he's just giving a summary. Timothy, these are the things that matter most for you to be about as he closes out this letter. So picking up from where we were in chapter 3 at the end, I'm going to have you stand. We're going to read this text, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. And so where this picks up is at the end of chapter 3, because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, because Scripture is the authority for what is true, because Scripture is sufficient to fully equip us for every good work. Therefore, Paul writes these words to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, 
reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to, to me, but to all, also to all who have loved his appearing. These are the words of the living God. You may be seated. So Paul is saying to Timothy, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus. Christ, who is the judge living in the dead, Christ, who is soon to return, who's by his appearing and by his kingdom. He's, he's going to appear. He's going to bring his, his kingdom in and full. His kingdom is already inaugurated. It started through his word and through uh, the gospel being spread, but it's going to be finalized and brought to full bloom when he returns. So why is Paul giving these heavy-duty words to Timothy at this point? Because he's, he's already given Timothy some words like this in the past. He's already given him like charges. I charge you to do this. I charge you to do that. But, but nowhere as intense as he has here. So what's so special about this point in time that uh, Paul is, is giving these heavy words to, uh, to Timothy? Well, it says in verse 2, preach the word. He's to preach the word. The word preach means to proclaim, to announce, to declare, to, to herald. People used to get their, their news through a herald who would go through the streets and say, Hear ye, hear ye, I've got an announcement from the king. And so um, that was before TV and Facebook and social media and, and all the news and all of that. So that's how you got your news. A herald would go about the streets declaring um, good news from the king or bad news or whatever. In the New Testament, to preach the word meant to proclaim the good, the gospel-centered word, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. So that was preaching was all about centered on Jesus Christ. Now, in general, our culture um, is at best neutral toward preaching, and most of the time you hear it used in a negative context, like "Don't preach at me," "Stop preaching to me," like like sometimes you say to me after the service. In other words, what they're saying is, don't lecture me. Don't, don't act like you can tell me what to do. Don't preach to me. Yet here we have Paul saying that preaching God's word is a primary, indispensable, non-negotiable apostolic mandate to, to be carried out. So in case you were wondering why churches have somebody preaching at you, to you, on Sundays, it's because of this text as much as any other text in the scripture. It's... God told us to, so we do it. And Paul is saying, be sure that you maintain the centrality of preaching God's word. Don't back away because of indifference or opposition, Timothy. In other words, Timothy, your priority above all else is to preach, to announce, to proclaim God's word. John the Baptist did it. 
He preached repentance. He preached the coming Jesus. Jesus preached repentance and proclaimed the kingdom of God. He sent out his disciples to preach, to proclaim the kingdom of God to Israel. Um, after his resurrection, Jesus mandated that repentance for forgiveness of sins be preached to all the nations. And in the rest of the New Testament, we see that um, the apostles went out about everywhere proclaiming and preaching Jesus. And in the history of the church since the apostles, the gospel has progressed the most and been the most effective where preaching has been strong and central in the church. So, for example, in the 1600s, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, who came later, but Martin Luther, uh, the, the reformer who recovered the gospel that was, that was getting all covered up by traditions and lack of preaching, said this. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word, and while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word did it all. So I don't know if beer did it, or, but probably God's word and did it. Um, and he he brought about the restoration of, of preaching, among other things, to the church. It's not a, a throwback relic of a outdated ways of communicating God's word uh, that we're free to replace with other methods because it's no longer relevant in our culture. That doesn't mean it's the only way. It's not the only way we communicate God's word. We do it um, in casual conversations. We do it over coffee. We do it in small groups. We do it in all kinds of ways. Uh, we gossip God's word. But preaching is central to the, the life and mis, mis, mission of the church. Uh, when Hudson Taylor went to China to, to spread the gospel among the inland provinces of China, they, they had a lot of ways of connecting people to God's word uh, in, in tracts and in books and in small uh, informal settings, but, but they also went everywhere preaching God's word, and it spread throughout China. Paul says Timothy is to be ready to preach, uh, to be prepared to preach or to persist in preaching, whether it's in season or out of season, whether Timothy's personal circumstances are good or not, or whether people are ready to hear it or not, whether people are receptive or not. So he he does it regardless of the receptivity. How <clears throat> How is Timothy to apply the preaching of God's word? Well, he's to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort. So uh, reprove means to confront, means to convict. It means to uh, point out people where they've done wrong. To rebuke is having confronted them, you uh, tell them to stop, to repent, and turn to God and change their ways. And to help them to do that differently, you exhort and encourage them. So same word, exhort, encourage. Uh, you call them to live out the gospel you call them to trust in Christ if they haven't, to believe in him and trust in his provision, depending on the Holy Spirit. And you do that with complete patience and teaching. So preaching the word, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching, even in confronting and rebuking, have an attitude of patience rather than one of harshness. So where you just leave people beat up rather than built up. Don't be exasperated and frustrated with people because they are slow to respond. Reproving, rebuking, and exhorting with complete patience allows you to teach so that their hearts are being shaped by understanding God's word rather than mere shame or self-effort. Think of times people have been patient with you when you haven't understood something or when you've been reluctant or resistant to uh, turning your life 
away from falsehood and from misbehaving. We are to preach God's word, not our hobby horses. Letting the scriptures uh, just say what they say provides the balance of reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. I don't have to get up in the morning and say, I wonder what I need to rebuke people for today. I mean, I might have to do that with my wife, but other than that, I don't have to do that with you. More often her with me. So you just let the scripture say what it says, and eventually you're going to get taught, you're going to get reproved, you're going to get rebuked, you're going to get exhorted, you're going to get encouraged. The scripture's got it all, and just let the scriptures loose. Let them say what they say. So God's word sets our agenda. And um, the reason that, that Timothy needs to be ready to do this all the time is because what Paul says in verse 3, the time is coming when people uh, will not endure sound teaching. Because the time is coming when people will not tolerate sound teaching, healthy teaching. They will not endure it. They won't put up with it. He says the time is coming enough, though to some extent it already had started, even in Timothy's day, uh, it, it will be out of season. And he's, he's not saying, he's not talking about the culture. He's not saying, hey, people out there are not going to want to listen to God's word. You, people are not going to come to churches. They're not going to be where they're going to hear God's word. He's not even talking about that. He's talking about people who are in the church, who have heard God's truth, and are turning their backs on it. Rather than embracing sound teaching, he says they will accumulate for themselves teachers who scratch their itching ears to suit their sinful passions. Their ears are just itching to have people tell them what they want to hear. Their ears are itching for a new spin on the truth, more to their liking. They seem to think if they can heap up enough teachers, that will confirm, that will confirm what they want to be right according to their desires. They thought, like many today, that, that truth could be decided by how many people say what they want to be true. The more people you can get to agree with you, the more you can say, hey, look, all these people agree with me, it's got to be right. They think that that justifies their rejection of those who preach the truth as being on the wrong side of history. In the 300s AD, there was a guy named Athanasius. He was the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. He was contending for the biblical truth of the, of the deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, that Jesus as the Son of God was equal with God. Those who promoted the view that God's Son was a created being and less than God, uh, and not equal with God, were able to exert influence, and Athanasius was exiled five times over his career. So someone said, Athanasius, the world is against you. And Athanasius' reply was, well, then Athanasius is against the world. He actually said it in Latin. It's cooler in Latin. Contramundum. Athanasius is contramundum. And Paul goes on in verse 4 and says, and they will deliberately will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into the myths. Now, in the translation we have the word the is not there, but it's in the original. So he, he, Timothy knew what myths they were talking about. In fact, a lot of people in his church were subscribing to the Myth of the Month Club. What, what, what's the new myth for this month? When you turn away from the truth of the gospel, you don't believe in nothing. You will believe in some replacement for God, some other version of salvation, and some other way to determine what's right and wrong. 
<clears throat> so uh, I'll just mention six myths. Any of them we could talk longer about, but I'm just going to highlight them. A lot of them kind of overlap. And the first myth is, is atheism or practical atheism. Some people uh, don't deny God exists, but they, they, they just have a philosophy of life as if he has nothing to do with anything. Basically, atheism just says all, all reality can be explained and is contained by the material universe and natural processes. So atheism, God's out of the picture. A second myth is kind of combining three distortions of God, polytheism, pantheism, and, and uh, animism. Polytheism is there are many gods. Pantheism is everything is God. And animism is there are spirits in everything. So God's either a lot of gods or, or everything is God, this chair, your God, or, or there are spirits in everything. And so you're, what you need to do is, is get the spirits to not harass you and leave you alone. So that's a, a second myth. A third myth is uh, called, are you ready for this? Moralistic therapeutic deism. You all know what that is, right? Okay, well, it goes like this. Moralistic, God wants people to behave. Therapeutic, God wants people to be happy. Deism, God is there, but he's not involved. So just be good, be happy, and don't worry too much about God. He won't hassle you. He'll just write checks and give you gifts. A fourth myth is the American civil religion. You might have seen that recently. Basically, it's God as our mascot. He blesses, and he changes with the time. So when, when America changes its views on things, God changes with it. He's really nice that way. So God's our mascot. He just, he just kind of keeps blessing, blessing us in spite of ourselves. A fifth myth is some form of the prosperity gospel, or some people call it um, name it and claim it, uh, positive confession, word of faith. God wants people to be physically healthy, materially wealthy, and personally happy in this life. And you get there by, by uh, claiming promises from the Old Testament a lot of times, and you pray and you, you ask God. In fact, you demand God to do things that he says he'll do, and you positively confess them into reality. And then it helps for you to send money to prosperity gospel preachers. So that's um, another myth. And then sixthly is what I call believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Uh, salvation is by searching inside yourself to find the real you, your authentic self. No one else can define you or, or limit you. The answer is inside you. Have you heard this before? Just follow your heart. It's, on, it's in all the movies. It's everywhere you go. Believe in yourself. Well, the, the, the best way to, to recognize a myth or a, a counterfeit is to know the true gospel. So what is the true gospel? According to the Father's good pleasure, the eternal Son, who is equal with the Father and is the exact representation of his nature, willingly left the glory of heaven, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, and was born to the God-man, was born the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. As a man, he walked on earth sinlessly, perfectly obeying God's, God's law. But 
man rejected him and crucified him. On the cross, he bore man's sin, suffered God's wrath, and died in man's place. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. This resurrection is God's declaration that the Father accepted his son's death as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus paid the penalty for for man's disobedience, satisfied the demands of justice, and absorbed the wrath of God for us. Forty days after the resurrection, the Son of God ascended into the heavens, sat down at the right hand of God, the Father, and was given glory, honor, and dominion over all. In God's presence, he represents his people. All who acknowledge their sinful, helpless state and put their trust in Christ, God will fully pardon. Declare righteous, give new spiritual life, and reconcile to himself. Jesus is going to return. He's going to resurrect his people from the dead, give them new bodies, and bring in his kingdom and the the new heavens and new earth. That's the gospel. So, which one do you choose? In verse 5, Paul says, As for you, in contrast to those who stockpile false teachers, who turn away from the truth, and who wander off into myths, always keep being sober-minded. Keep your head clear. Don't be hot-headed, or bobble-headed, or pig-headed, or empty-headed. Keep your head clear. Be level-headed. Be watchful. Be alert. Under the pressures and pains of dealing with the compromise and confusion, keep self-controlled. Don't be tossed about by trying to please everyone. Don't give in to accommodating myths. So he said, do that. Keep your head clear. Keep sober. He said, endure suffering. Now, he said that a lot to Timothy, and it's necessary because... It's inevitable in standing firm in the midst of popular appeal of false teaching, you're going to endure persecution. So keep being willing to suffer. Don't give up and just tolerate the spiritually intoxicating anti-gospel popularity of the times. Persevere. Do the work of an evangelist, he says. With the inroads of false teaching that false teaching was making in, in this area of Ephesus, Uh, You need to do the work of an evangelist, appealing to the people to be certain they are trusting in the true gospel. And again, I ask you this morning, are you trusting in the true gospel or in the myth of the month? And he says, fulfill your ministry. So that's really the bottom line. What he's saying to Timothy is fulfill your ministry. Finish your work. Fully accomplish what you have been entrusted to do. Persevere until you complete your task. Don't quit. Keep on. Keep on. Keep on. Where do you need to keep enduring to fulfill God's purpose? What are you being tempted to quit doing for God? How can Timothy endure? How can he fulfill his ministry? Well, Paul, in in the, the, the last few verses here, tells him, Because in verse 6 he says, For as you have been my disciple, so he's saying, Timothy, you have my example of finishing well. 
my life is being poured out as a drink offering. So it's like a sacrifice, uh, Old Testament drink offering. It's being poured out. I'm pulling up my stakes. The time of my departure has come. Uh, the, the word departure is used to talk about like the, uh, a ship lifting its anchor or a breakup of a camp by a group of soldiers. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going home. I'm pulling up my, I'm taking down camp. I'm pulling up the anchor. I'm, I'm ready to go home. He doesn't necessarily think he will be killed the next day or next week because, as we're going to see next week, a little bit later in this chapter, he says, Hey, Timothy, can you come see me before winter and make sure you bring the books? Yeah. Till death do his part, books. And bring the parchments so I can either write scripture or read the Old Testament scriptures. So he wants some reading material, he wants a coat, and he wants his books. He wants his Kindle, he wants his laptop. And he says in verse 7, this is the way it actually reads. The word order in the original goes like this. The good fight I have fought, the race I have finished, the faith I have kept. So in talking about the good fight, he uses the word, we get the word agonize or agony from that word for fight. Uh, He's not talking about how well he fought. He's not like an old man reminiscing. Well, I was in some good fights, man. I gave him a good fight. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that it's inherently good to fight for the gospel, to uphold the gospel and build up Christ's church. That's a good fight to be involved in. And elsewhere, Paul talks about his own personal fight to keep his body under control so that he doesn't become disqualified. So he's fought the good fight of keeping himself intact in faith as well as... um, uh, fighting for the, the cause of the gospel. He says, the race I have finished. He's not saying he won the race. He, it's still being run, and he's passing the baton to Timothy. But he has finished his part. He's not left anything undone. He preached the gospel, established strategic gospel beachheads among all the Gentiles in Asia and the Middle East. And then he says, I've kept the faith, the faith I have kept. He's personally kept the faith, his own faith in the gospel, despite all the suffering where he could have said, if this is what I'm getting for serving the Lord, I'm done. I'm out of here. No, he didn't. He kept, he kept his own faith, and he also guarded the faith of the gospel and from being compromised, corrupted, and contaminated. Now, this isn't Paul bragging on himself. What he's doing is he's, he is encouraging Timothy as their lives have been bound together in ministry. Timothy knows how much Paul has endured. This is Paul saying, by God's grace, I've persevered. It has been worth all the suffering and hardship. You've been following my example as I have followed Christ. You also can finish well. This is Paul discipling Timothy down to the very end of his life. In in verse 8, he says, Henceforth, in the future... There is laid up for for me, Paul, the crown of righteousness. He says the Lord will award it to to him on that day when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Is Paul saying that he will have earned or merited this crown by his own righteousness? Well, he says in Philippians chapter 3 that um, I, I don't want a righteousness of my own, but that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from from God on the basis of faith. So uh, Paul calls it 
the crown of righteousness. The reason Paul is getting a crown of righteousness is that Jesus wore a crown of thorns for him and bore his sins. But in doing that, he also redeemed Paul into a life of righteousness. So he's talking about both. He's talking about the righteousness that God gives, gives us as a standing before him, as well as giving us right desires that begin to work, work out in our lives so we start living righteously. So he's talking both about per- persevering in faith. You've got to persevere in faith because only by faith do you receive the righteousness that comes from God. So you, you continue to trust in God. You continue to depend upon him to give you the gift of righteousness, to stay in with God. Not by your own effort, but, but but saving faith by its own nature is declaring, I depend upon God to gift me righteousness. I don't have it on my own. As well as pursuing righteousness. And ultimate perfection is what uh, this is what, what the crown of righteousness will be. A permanent state of righteousness. So we, right now our righteousness is pretty unstable. Hey, I, I'm doing pretty well for these next five minutes, but I could blow it. And I do blow it. So one day I won't be blowing it anymore. Can you wait? For the, can you wait for that day to not be blowing it anymore? To not be resolving to do better and, and you crash and burn before the day's out? There's com- there's coming a time when we will be perfected in righteousness. It says in in uh, Hebrews 12 that uh, where heaven is a place where the spirits of righteous people are made perfect. So that's what Paul's wanting. He's longing for that day when he'll be perfected in righteousness. And while Nero was about to declare Paul guilty and condemn him, Christ, the righteous judge, was about to declare him righteous. He says this crown is not just for Paul, but for all who have loved his appearing. It's for everybody who's loved his appearing. So what does it mean to love his appearing? Well, I mean, it certainly means I'm longing for Christ to return, but, but he's talking more about that you're living for that. You persevere in faith, and you pursue righteousness, righteous living, being cleansed from all unrighteousness through confession, repentance, trust in Christ, longing for the day of his, of his of return. And, um, and as you do that, you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness for the day of his return. So you, you, your, your whole life is being shaped by longing for his coming. Your loves, your hopes, your comforts, your joys, your choices, anticipating his coming. It gives hope to endure in the faith for him, to persevere in serving him and suffering for him. It's like James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, under a life of trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Or Jesus says to a church in Revelation 3, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this vision will keep you running, running your race as you set your eyes on Christ. Look to Jesus. He is for you. He is interceding for you. Keep running. Keep fighting. Keep guarding. Soon you will see him as he is. He will say, well done. He will place a crown on your head. On that day, you will not regret fighting, running, and enduring for his namesake. Keep holding fast to God's word. Keep enduring. Father, we give you thanks that we have, not only Timothy had this example of the Apostle Paul, but we have him as an example of one who was all in, who 
continue to be faithful, holding fast to you, persevering in faith, running hard the race, enduring, not trusting in himself and his own goodness and his own religiosity or his own strength, but totally relying upon you, but all in for you. So, Father, we want to be able to say this. We want to be faithful to your word, whether we're preachers of your word that stand up in a church on Sunday morning or we're out preaching it in the community or we're sharing it across the table over a cup of coffee. We want to be faithful to communicate your word. And we want to be able to say, I've run the race. I've kept the faith. I've endured. Help us to, to be faithful to you, to hold fast to the grace we have in Christ, to his truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name.